Turn with me in um, Acts chapter 2. We are, um, we've come to uh, verse uh, 44 um, in, our, in our way through the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to go through verse 47 this morning. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Our Father, as we come before your holy word, which gives us this holy vision of what... uh, what the community of God's people is to look like. We, in humility, admit from the beginning that we fall short of this and that we want to repent, we want to be better, we want to become this community. But for that to happen, we have to have your, uh, your Spirit's guidance. And so would you come visit the preaching of your Word, convict us, encourage us, change us. Lord, as your people, we are hungry. Feed us with the living word. Lord, I ask for the grace, strength, wisdom, unction, anointing that I need to preach faithfully for you, Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So today we come to Acts 2, verses 44 through 47 also known as the Socialism Passage. It's becoming a very popular passage in our day as socialism is becoming increasingly popular. The word socialism does not carry the uh, same stigma that it once did. In fact, among millennials and Gen Z's, We have almost reached the tipping point of it being the preferred economic philosophy within America. The latest polling is showing that 49.7% of Gen Z and millennials prefer to live in a socialist country. This only begs the question, this only begs the question of how something that has proven time and time again to be um, not just an effective economic strategy, but a destructive one. How is it that something that has proven time and again throughout history to be so destructive is gaining a newfound popularity among our youth? There are a lot of different takes, hot takes being written, trying to explain the phenomenon And most of them are attributing it to just um, the old lazy entitlement of millennials who just want a bunch of free stuff. Um, Not many hot takes being written on who raised that generation, by the way. But that assessment in itself, not only is it uncharitable, to be honest with you, it just... It's not complex enough. 
It doesn't tell the fuller, fuller picture of what is taking place in our culture. Instead of dismissing the rise of socialism as purely the rise of generational entitlement, a much more charitable approach is to sincerely ask if it is a response to something more sinister within our culture. It is much more charitable to ask millennials and Gen Z folks why it is that they are rejecting capitalism in, in the form of socialism, in favor of socialism. And if you will go down those conversations with them, what you will discover is not lazy entitlement. What you will discover is it's not as much embracing socialism as it is rejecting capitalism as they have known it. I recently read an interesting article about a new housing crisis that is upon us. And it's that there are no buyers for the excessively gaudy homes that the boomer generation built. That these wealthy sprawls are just empty because there's simply no market for anyone that wants to buy these homes. Because speaking candidly, the rising generation is nauseated by excess. What if the rise of socialism was less about entitlement and more about a rebuke. A rebuke of what we have become. A profound rebuke that our youth are disgusted by our greed and our overconsumption and they want no part of it. I think it's more of an issue of justice for our youth. They are, after all, known as the justice generation. They are much more concerned about helping those in need than building mansions. But they wrongly assume that socialism is the pathway to justice. They're obsessed with justice. They just think socialism is the answer when it's not. Well, in our passage this morning, we see a community that our youth are longing to see. A community of people who embrace this unconventional, dare I say, unheard of, radical conviction where people actually believe that my resources exist not for me, but for my neighbor. The fruit of Pentecost is a new community, what I'm calling God's counter-community, a counter-option in this world. A community of believers that shows the world how this world ought to be. A unique set-apart community that says, this is what life looks like, or should look like, under the reign of King Jesus. The foundational description of that community is found in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is the promise of socialism. It's a promise that socialism never delivers upon, but that's the promise nonetheless. But what if the church, the community of God's people, was able to actually deliver upon that promise? I'm telling you, this counter-community would be utterly compelling in our day and age. 
I understand the youth of our culture. And I'm telling you, this passage lived out in a church community would be utterly compelling. But the counter community is not so easily cultivated. It demands a renouncing of that which is fundamental to all of us, this thing called selfishness. That universal fallen condition that says, I exist for me. God's counter option to the world of selfishness. God's counter community says the opposite. I exist for you. And we will see that in our passage in two ways. My resources for you and my life for you. Let's look at each. My resources for you. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Because this verse is the controversial one and the misinterpreted one, let me state up front what it is not saying that is important. It's not socialism. There's a huge difference between state-mandated distribution of wealth and voluntary distribution. The former you will not find in the Bible. The latter you will actually find everywhere. But even more than that, don't misunderstand what's going on here. This is not some strange cultist commune where where private ownership is renounced and all resources are just distributed and we just kind of all share in everything together. The key here to the verse is those last few words, the as any had need. People were selling their possessions and they were distributing the proceeds as any had need, not selling all their possessions and distributing all the wealth, but selling and distributing to meet the needs of the community. Needs were fully met with the resources of the community, but the resources of the community did not belong to the community. So no, this verse is not advocating for socialism and no, this verse is not saying that you have to liquidate everything and give it to the church. But it would be so wrong of me to, sh- to simply show how this verse isn't socialism and then move on from it. It would be so wrong for me to just get you off the hook and say, don't worry, it's not talking about socialism. Go back to your ways. It is really important for me to say what this isn't. It's not socialism, but it's more important for me to say what it is. The last thing I want to do is get us off the hook and enable the greed and excess that is so common in our culture. In our context, we do not have to worry about defending the right of private ownership. You get that principle very well. Instead, what we have to fear is the error that my resources are mine. They are not. They are God's. And what this is telling us is that God expects us first and foremost to prioritize the needs of the church above our own. That is to say, the resources he has given, they are entrusted to you in order to fulfill the needs of his community. The passage is, in fact, that radical. It isn't socialism, but it is this. Before anything else, home, retirement, vacation, hobbies, you name it. Before anything else, 
the needs of this community come first. This is why the principle of tithing is so important to cultivate in your life. The idea is that it is a first fruit offering. Now, why is that important? It's this. First, I give to God's community. And then with what is left, I take care of myself. First, I establish my standard of giving. And then afterward comes the standard of living. Not flipped. There's nothing wrong with the great standard of living. Nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. Makes God happy. Nothing wrong with a nice dinner. Nothing wrong with a nice vacation. Have at it. First, establish your standard of giving. And then comes the standard of living. And it's this first and foremost prioritization that we see here in our passage. So what I'm saying here is... Let's not overcomplicate this application by trying to figure out what it means to sell our possessions and distribute according to the needs and what was the difference between their culture and our culture and all those different stuff. Just listen, simply put, because of the wealth that exists within this congregation, because of capitalism, by the way, because of the wealth that exists within this congregation, if every member of TCPC tithed, then verse 45 would be a reality among us. If every person that is a member of this church or a regular attendant, if everybody who calls this church home, if you prioritized tithing, there would literally be no needs. Can you believe that? But it's true. Now, in some ways, we already, this is already the case, and we need to celebrate that. We really do. Um, and, and here's where it's the case. Urgent needs are fully met at this church. We are able to keep the lights on and pay the bills. We are able to um, meet payroll. Our mercy fund is such that if there's anyone in this community with an emergency need, it will be met. That in itself is outstanding. What other community can you join where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will not go hungry and you will not be on the street? Destitution is simply not an option if you are a member of TCPC. What an amazing community. So the more urgent, emergency, pressing needs, they're all being met. And we need to praise God for that. That's not the case in every church. I was talking to a pastor who called me this week, was struggling. And he said, man, looking at our budget, I don't know if we're going to be able to make payroll next month. And there's a lot of churches that are struggling with things like that. We're not. Praise the Lord. But that does not mean we are without need. We need to hire a family pastor. There are 494 kids in this congregation with 166 volunteers caring for them. I think that qualifies as a need. That's a big church. We need a pastor over all that. We need to hire a female women's director in this church. It is a desperate need. We need to be doing more with missions. We, we, we need to plant another church in two years. It's coming, y'all. We just planted one. We got to do another one. We need to be out of debt. So just because baseline urgent needs are met does not mean that, to use the language of the passage, as any had need is being met. 
And what I'm telling you is that all of us tithing to this community would ensure that all those needs I just listed and many more would be met. It's not socialism. It is voluntary conviction that my resources exist first and foremost for this, not me. But it goes beyond resources. Not only is it my resources for you, secondly, it is my life for you. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The two things that are singled out is gathering for worship, attending uh, the temple together, and gathering for fellowship, breaking bread in one another's homes. And we talked a lot about this last week, so I won't belabor it. The picture, though, that is emerging out of this is that this community did life together in every way. It was not a collection of individuals that just kind of got together for meetings. They just did life together, to use Dietrich Bonhoeffer's language. So it wasn't just a benevolent community that, uh, where there, there were none, none were needy. It was a fellowshipping community where none were lonely. And for that to happen, it, meant that not, it means that not only do my resources belong to you, my very life belongs to you. At the end of the day, community doesn't merely need my money. This community needs me. I spoke on this briefly last week, but let me return to this point. The paradigm shift that has to take place for us is this. It's much less about your need for community and much more about the community's need of you. There is a lot of talk about your need for community these days. And I get that because we are an isolated, lonely culture and we are dying because of it. And yes, you do need community to flourish. But if that then turns into a needy, consumeristic approach to community, not only will you never be satisfied with community, you will miss the greater point of community. And it's this. It's less that you need community and more about the community needs you. Or to put it more bluntly, the life of this community, the gathering together for worship, the breaking bread in each other's homes, the fellowship, the cookouts at night, all of this, the life of this community is incomplete without you. If you are here, if God has brought you to this church He brought you here for a reason. And the reason is not primarily to receive, but to give. You have unique gifts. You have a unique story. You have a unique perspective. And if you are an inactive member, then you are depriving us of God's gift to us. Now, this is easy to quantify when it comes to the first point, isn't it? Because resources are so tangible. If you are not tithing to this community, then you are depriving this community. But what about things like our talent, our time? We fall into the same trap with these things, these less quantifiable resources as we do with our money. And it's this, we wrongly, we wrongly assume that they are ours. Just like it's wrong to say my money's mine. No, it's not. It's the, God, it's the Lord's. And the Lord says, use it for this. Well, within, when it comes to talent... My time, my service, that's not mine. 
My talent is not mine. My gifts are not mine. My time is not mine. It exists for God and his purposes. And he is telling us that he intends for you to use your time, your talents, your very life to serve within this very community. For some of us, this is much more difficult than merely giving our money to support the community. I count myself in this group. Inconvenience is much more difficult for me than generosity. But it's just as important. What about you? Do you view the cost of inconvenience as important as the cost of generosity? Serving the church, embracing the interruptions that take place, enduring the awkwardness of a diverse community of sinners trying to get to know each other and get along, the conversations that you don't have time for, the interruptions you don't have time for, attending a parish group, just making room in your weekly schedule for other people. These are the costs of community. And this passage is calling us to embrace the cost of inconvenience that a community demands. My resources for you, my life for you. Community ain't easy. But it is most definitely worth it. Because sowing the seeds of community like this is destined to give way to the harvest that we long to see. That's where the passage ends in verse 47. We are given the results of God's counter community. And what we see are amazing internal and external fruit. The internal fruit is found in this. Praising God and having favor with all people. What this community does is it creates a community of both praise and love. This is the ultimate aim of Christian community. A vertical community that exists to praise God and a horizontal community that exists to love one another. God is praised. People are loved. This is the aim of the community. And this gives way to that internal fruit. But then the external fruit is the second half of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love that those who were being saved part. Because it gives us this vision not of adding to our number dissatisfied Christians from the church down the road. But adding to our number the unconverted. Which is what we want. We want to take them from the devil not other churches. But listen, if it is the Lord adding to our number, and it is, verse says it, it is the Lord's work, he adds to the number, then why would he add to a community that isn't embodying what he wants from a community? The answer is he won't. What this means is that this external fruit that we all long to see we want to we see conversions. We want to see the lost saved. We want to, Lord, grow our number. We want to plant churches. This external fruit that we all long to see is preceded by the hard work of cultivating God's vision for a community. We don't need another evangelism program. There's tons of them out there. They're all great. Choose one. Use it. Fantastic. I lectured on evangelism to secular age. Use it. That's great. 
We don't need to add more programs to offer. We don't need a new attractional model. We need to become a counter community that is irresistible to the world. A place where those outside our community see within our community something radically different than the cruel world they inhabit. A place that gives them what socialism vainly promises. They may have intellectual hang-ups. They may see our inconsistencies and hypocrisies. They may think our ethics are hopelessly outdated. They may have countless objections to Christianity, but they see within the bounds of this community something irresistible and they want in. A peculiar collection of members who actually believe and practice that my resources belong to the community, that my life belongs to the community, is utterly revolutionary in a world of individualistic selfishness. If we embody this, God will add to this. But ultimately, this fruit, this internal and external fruit, this is not our greatest motivation Why are we this? Why become this? Because this is the Savior we serve. Ultimately, Jesus wants us to be this because Jesus is this, and in becoming this, we show the world Jesus. First point, Jesus demands a counter-community where my resources are for you. Why does he demand that? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's why he demands it. Second point, Jesus demands a counter community where my life belongs to you. Why does he demand that? Because of 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why? Why would we embrace this radical call that my resources belong to you, that my life belongs to you? Why? Because Jesus. I do this for you because Jesus has done this for me. Let's become this. Let's become this counter community and show our world what Jesus is truly like. Let's invite our world that is falling in love with socialism to fall in love with Jesus instead. Let me pray. Lord, we need your grace to make that happen. We need your help to make that happen. A radical call to renounce our selfishness and see our resources and our time and our talents and our very life as belonging to this community before anything else. And so we ask that you would give us grace to do just that. Strengthen us in this meal that proclaims the Savior who was rich but became poor the Savior who gave his very life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.